Okay, let's open our Bibles to Revelation 14, and Lord willing, we are going to uh, complete this chapter today. Uh, this is the chapter, you may remember, that basically announces the events that will be fulfilled in chapters 15 to 19. Uh, in other words, uh, we're dealing here with the book of prophecy, but within the book itself, you have prophecies about the prophecies. So this chapter consists of prophecies or announcements concerning certain events in the rest of the book uh, that will conclude this age. Now, we're coming to a passage today that describes two harvests. So let's read about them. Uh, we'll begin in verse 14. And I won't have this on the screen, so you can follow along in your Bibles or your digital devices. It says, verse 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the clouds sat one like the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs, which is about 320 kilometers. The approach that we're taking in our series in Revelation is what what we call a systematic exposition, which has many benefits to it, uh, not the least of which is that it forces us to deal with every passage as it comes up in a book. I mean, we can't escape even one verse. In fact, uh, you would think it odd if I skipped these verses in, in uh, chapter 14 and asked you to open up to chapter 15. Uh, somebody would certainly ask me afterwards, well, why did you skip those verses? And yet there are many preachers who take a very selective approach to scripture where they kind of jump around from text to text. And it means that over the course of many years, even a good preacher may cover a lot of the major doctrines, but yet not really cover them in the way that scripture does because uh, they're naturally avoiding some of the passages. Uh, in nearly 25 years of ministry, I've discovered that some passages are just too hot for preachers to handle. First uh, Corinthians 11 uh, on the passage on head coverings is one of them. Uh, Romans 9 is another one on election. In fact, uh, some preachers simply have an allergic reaction to any verse that mentions the word election or predestination. Uh, unfortunately, there are also many preachers who never tackle revelation either because of the difficulties that it presents to their approach to prophecy. But taking a systematic approach to scripture really forces us to deal with these things and to deal with them in the way that they stand rather than the way that we would like them to be. Now, every preacher begins the preparation of a message with one of two questions in his mind. He's either asking the question, 
what can I say about this passage? Or is asking the question, what does this passage say? And there's a world of difference in what happens in study, depending on which of those two questions is foremost in his mind. Uh, If someone consistently approaches scripture asking the first question, well, there's going to be many passages that he skips over because he can't think of how to make them applicable to his people. Uh, But if a man simply asks, what does this passage say? And then he submits himself to the passages as they come. Well, he's going to go through scripture uh, searching to determine the exact meaning of those passages. And then the applications uh, will come along naturally as he goes. Now, I say all of that to make the point that as we have been working through the book of Revelation, uh, there really have been times when I've struggled to deal with certain passages. And this is one of those passages. But as I've read this over and over, it really seems to me, I think, uh, that the best way of unlocking it uh, is simply by asking a series of questions that automatically comes to mind uh, to the casual reader. So I want to just begin uh, this message by laying out five questions that I think will unlock this passage for us. These are questions that I had to answer for myself. Uh, questions that commentators have all answered in different ways. So let's just get them on the table and see if we can find some satisfactory answers for it today. Number one, this passage is clearly dealing with harvests, and there are two of them. Uh, you have the harvest of grain and the harvest of grapes. So the first question is this, who are the subjects of these harvests? Now, there's no question that the harvest of grapes is the reaping of the wicked, because verse 19 refers to them being thrown into the great wine press of the wrath of God. So clearly, uh, this is the vintage of the wicked. But the question is whether the first harvest of grain also refers to the reaping of wicked people, or if it's actually the harvest of the righteous, which is then followed by the harvest of the wicked. So who are the subjects of these harvests? If I knew that, uh, that would help a lot. Number two, who is the personage in verse 14? Uh, I'm talking about the one in verse 14, the one who was sitting on a cloud, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And someone says, well, that's the Messiah. But what throws people off is the fact that verse 15 says that this person is commanded by an angel. And it seems inappropriate for an angel to be giving directions to the Messiah like that. So that's a question we do need to cover. Who is the personage? Number three, why are there two harvests described? Especially if both of them refer to the same wicked people. And number four, if you look at the end of the passage in verse 20, it says that the winepress of God's wrath is trampled outside the city. So number four, what is the city? What's the identification of that city in verse 20? Uh, And of course, earlier in this passage, we had a city name uh, when verse eight says fallen, fallen is Babylon. So is that the city in verse 20? Is this the the winepress of the wrath of God trampled outside Babylon, which is located on the Euphrates? That's a question we need to answer. And then lastly, how do you account for the river of blood? that is as deep and as long as verse 20 describes. 
Remember, it goes up to the horse's bridles, and it's nearly 320 kilometers in length. Well, I want to take those questions today and attempt to answer them biblically. And as we do, I think we'll have a window opened in our understanding of the harvest of grain and grapes. So let's begin with the first question about the subjects of these harvests. And more specifically, is that first harvest a harvest of sinners or saints? And there's no question about the second one, but is the first one involving sinners or saints? Well, as we consider this question, I do want to remind you that there are numerous passages in the New Testament that speak of gathering God's people like a harvest. Let me quickly give you the references. In Luke 3.17, John the Baptist said that Jesus would someday gather his wheat into his barn. In Matthew 13.30, Jesus referred to the owner of a field, saying to the reapers, gather the wheat into my barn. And this is after the tares are thrown into the furnace of fire. Uh, the Lord also told a parable about the growth of God's people in Mark 4, 26 to 29. And he said that your life in the eyes of God is first like a blade and then a small head of an ear. And finally, the full grain in the ear. And uh, uh, John Newton wrote a very well-known letter to a friend that been often quoted since then where he describes those stages of growth, and he called it the progressive work of grace in a believer's life. Uh, it's first the blade, and then the ear, and then the full corn in the ear. And then the last verse of that passage says that when the grain ripens, the harvest has come for God's people. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, our Lord's resurrection is described as the first fruits of a full resurrection harvest of his people that is yet to come. So that harvest terminology clearly is used in the New Testament for saints. However, in this case, I think that the harvest being described here is actually the harvest of sinners. Um, let me give you three reasons for that. Number one, the atmosphere or the context of the entire passage is foreboding. Uh, this is not offering the tone of salvation, but of judgment. Number two, the sharpness of the sickle in both harvests is certainly not comforting to the people of God. Uh, that really is an image that is depicting uh, severe judgment. But most significantly, number three, the Lord himself gave us details concerning the harvest of sinners. And I do want you to turn to that if you have your Bibles to uh, Matthew 13. This is the chapter uh, in which our Lord gives parables about the kingdom. And one of those parables has to do with the mixed spiritual conditions in the world today. Uh, in other words, there are people whose lives are so notoriously sinful that they're clearly pagan. I mean, there's no question about them and where they stand in their lost condition. However, there are others whose lives have so outwardly conformed to that of true wheat that the Lord says that they actually appear to be wheat, and he calls them tares, which is uh, a kind of weed that takes on the appearance of genuine wheat. Now, when the Lord explained what was going to happen to people like that, he said in verse 43, therefore, as the tares are gathered uh, and burned in the fire, uh, so it will be at the end of this age. All right, so he's talking about 
uh, the same period of time that we are in in the book of Revelation. It's the end, it's the consummation of the age. So we know uh, uh, that we're in the right chronological context here. And here's what's going to happen at that time. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels. And that's important to note for later on. He's going to employ his angels as his agents. And they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. And I will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Verse 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And you can see that the sequence of harvesting begins with the lawless and then moves to the righteous in the kingdom. In fact, if you look uh, at verse 30 in that passage, uh, which I won't put up, when our Lord uh, told the parable, he said that the owner of the field told the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But then he said, gather the wheat into my barn. And remember that John the Baptist said he will gather his wheat into his barn. So what's he gathering? According to verse 43, it's going to be the righteous who shine forth as the sun in the kingdom. So if you're in the kingdom, you're in the barn. But the tares are first gathered out of the barn. Now, in light of that passage, it appears to me that the grain harvest in Revelation 14 is a harvesting of lost people. Those who have been reaped, bound up, and cast into a furnace of fire during the tribulation, while God's people on earth at that time simply remain. But then the Lord returns, and the kingdom is set up, and the righteous are then gathered into the barn, into the kingdom. And I think uh, this interpretation will be a little more justified as we go further into the passage. So who are the subjects? I'm suggesting and hopefully justifying the fact that the harvest in both cases is a harvest of lost people. But why are there two? Well, we'll answer that in just a moment. But first, let me take you to the second question, which has to do with the personage in verse 14. Who is the one who was like the Son of Man? Well, if you're in Matthew 13, look at verse 41 again, because when the Lord gives the explanation for that parable, he says that the Son of Man will send his angels. You see that? He will send out his angels. Now, Let's turn to Daniel 7, and I want to weave in another passage at this point, and this is a passage that we've looked at before in our study. And I want to remind you then that the first eight verses involve this sequence of empires that will eventuate in the final world kingdom of the Antichrist. Uh, Daniel sees this sequence as four great beasts in verse 4. Let's just identify them again. In verse 4, you remember the first one was like a lion. In verse 5, the second was like a bear. In verse 6, the third was like a leopard. And in verse 7, the fourth was unlike anything. It was a kind of iron beast with ten horns. Now, look at verse 8. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom, the, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, so they're overthrown. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, we already know who this is, right? In fact, later on in the chapter, that fourth beast, the ten horns, and this little horn are all interpreted. Let's see that from verse 19. 
Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. In verse 20, the meaning of the ten horns that were on his head, and then especially the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words. His appearance was greater than his fellows. Verse 21, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Verse 25, that horn shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and so on. Verse 26, but the court shall be seated, seated for judgment, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. So who is the little horn? Well, it's obviously the Antichrist. The man of sin, it's the beast out of the sea. We've seen all of that before. I'm just recovering those facts to remind you. But go back to verse 8. And now that we know what that is, verse 9 says, Daniel uh, is he's still looking on. Uh, he's now in this period of time when the Antichrist is in power. And he says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. I watched then because of the sound, and that sound has been going on the whole time that the heavenly judgment scene is being set it's out of the sight of men it's the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking so you can just imagine being in that position uh the antichrist is carrying on with his blasphemy and the whole time unbeknownst to him the ancient of days is taking his seat uh, with a flame and a river of fire is emerging from him well here's what happens next verse 11 i watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, these other kingdoms, uh, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, which means that in some sense, those kingdoms will endure right into the millennial period. And now verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man. All right, now we just need to slow down uh, just a little bit here. Do you remember that Revelation 14 said that the personage was one like the son of man? All right. Well, Daniel 7.13, it's one like a son of man. And do you remember the throne on which that person in Revelation 14 was seated? Remember that? He was seated on a white cloud. Verse 13, Daniel 7, 13, he is coming with the clouds of heaven. Revelation 14 also told us he had something on his head. It was a golden crown, Daniel 7, 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Well, kingdoms have kings. Kings wear a sign of their position on their head. They wear a crown. So Revelation 14 again, I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown. Daniel 7, 13, behold, 
one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now, that person in Revelation 14 also has a sickle, right? It says in his hand, a sharp sickle, which he holds over the earth. Well, in Daniel 7, of course, we don't see that reaping, but we do have a passage in the New Testament that identifies the one who will ultimately judge men. It's in John 5, 22 to 23, which is a critical passage in the word of God. Let's look at it. Jesus said, but the father judges no one. So there's not a single person here who's going to be judged by God the Father. Instead, he's committed all judgment to the Son, the Son of Man. Why? Well, he did this, it says, so that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You know, a lot of people are willing to honor the Father as God, but they demean the Son as a lesser being. Think of the cults that do that today, along with some major religions. You're talking about billions of people. But no, God the Father intends that all men honor the Son as they do the Father. And the warning is given in verse 23 that he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In other words, there's no possibility that you are honoring God the Father if you are demeaning God the Son. You see, God the Father has so designed the future that in the judgment to come, when men stand before the throne, the one with whom they will have to answer to is the Son. And at that point, it'll be very clear to them that the Son is everything when it comes to their future. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 2 that every tongue will confess to him and every knee will bow to him. Why? Well, because the Father has planned that all men will honor God the Son as they honor the Father, they're going to bow to him like you bow to God. There's just no, no escaping this. Now, when you take that passage and then interpret Revelation 14, which is the reaping of the earth with a sharp sickle by one like the Son of Man, with a crown on his head, coming on a white cloud, it appears to be indisputable that the person in Revelation 14 is none other than Jesus, the Messiah. So how do you explain the objection then that an angel comes out of the temple to give him the command to reap? I mean, it seems improper for an angel to give commands to the Son of God. Well, the only way to reconcile that problem is if the angel is not the origin of the command, but simply the bearer of the direction that is coming from God the Father himself. And I think the background to that one is in Acts 1-7, when our Lord was speaking to his disciples just before the ascension, and they asked him, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And his response was, well, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. In other words, the Father is the one who has authority over the timing and the seasons. So when that angel emerges from the temple and cries out, the time has come to reap, that time is under the Father's authority, meaning that the angel is a messenger from God announcing that the time has come and the harvest of the earth is red ripe and must be reaped. And as a result, the son seated in his regal majesty with that terrible sieve in his hand thrusts that sickle into the earth and reaps it. Now, that brings us now to the third question. Why are there two harvests 
in this passage. If each one has to do with lost people, why are there two of them? Well, the answer to that is right in the book of Revelation. So I want you to go to chapter 16. Remember that chapter 14 is a preview of events that will take place in chapters 15 to 19. So what we have here is really a preview of reaping. So when does it actually occur? Revelation 16 is going to describe it. Look at verse 1. And I heard a loud voice from the temple. Oops, I lost it. There it is. And I heard a loud voice uh, from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Now, these seven angels have containers holding what chapter 15, verse 1 says, are the seven last plagues, because in them the wrath of God is finished. So in verse 2, when the first angel pours his bowl out on the earth, what happens? When the second angel pours out his bowl in verse 3, what happens? In verse 4, uh, the third angel pours out his bowl and so on. What's happening when these bowls are being poured out? Well, plagues are raining down on the dwellers of the earth. And millions and millions and millions of them die. They are reaped. Now, tie that into Matthew 13. And remember that it talks about the Son of Man sending forth his angels. They are the agents who will gather the tares out and leave the righteous. Well, that is exactly what's going on in this sequence of judgments beginning in Revelation 16. When the angels are pouring out the bold judgments. Now let's keep going and just see what happens next. Look at verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. And that, of course, is Satan. Out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist. And out of the mouth of the false prophet. And that's the beast out of the earth, you remember. So John sees these three unclean spirits like frogs exiting from the mouths of these individuals. Verse 14, for they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle, to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. And that is a term that even lost people have heard before. Let's talk about this for a moment. I want to introduce this to you. Armageddon, or really Armageddon in the Hebrew, literally means the hill of Megiddo. The ancient city of Megiddo is a well-known site to visit in the land of Israel. Now, our, our tour group didn't get there in 2013, but I was there in 2011, and it's called the Megiddo Tel, or Tel Megiddo, which is a mound that stands 210 meters above a vast plain. And picture there's a little fuzzy, but you get an idea what it looks like. Now, of course, in ancient times, when a city was conquered and destroyed, uh, they didn't clear the site before they began building again. Uh, that's because it would take a great deal of manpower without all the heavy machinery that we have today. So instead, it was easier to fill in the gaps and build on top of the previous city, which then made each successive city rise higher and higher from sea level. And that's why archaeologists today can cut through the various strata levels and tell who was there in the past and who conquered who and what happened. For example, at Tel Jericho, 
when I was there, you could see all the strata levels and you can see what happened way back in the past. And you can actually observe that the walls really did cave inwards, as the Bible describes, the Battle of Jericho. Well, Tel Megiddo is on a site that has this commanding position over the major pass through the Carmel range of mountains down to the coast along the Mediterranean. Now, this was a primary caravan trade route. So if you were coming from the east, from Babylon or Assyria, for example, and you wanted to take your goods to Egypt, well, you came right by Megiddo through that pass. It's inevitable. And that's why this strategic site has been battled over many times in history. Archaeologists have uncovered strata levels indicating that this city has been overthrown and rebuilt many times. Uh, maybe you remember playing King of the Hill as a kid. Well, that hill uh, has been a hill over which the kings of the Mediterranean world have played King of the Hill many, many times. In fact, they believe that the bottom strata go back thousands of years before Christ. And we'll deal with this in more detail in later messages. But this passage says that in the future, the kings of the whole world will be gathered to do battle on that great day to the place called the Hill of Megiddo. Well, as you can kind of see uh, in the picture, there is a vast plain on one side of that hill, and that's been the site of many, many battles in history. Uh, for example, this is where Deborah and Barak took on Sisera and his 900 chariots of iron. This is where Gideon and his 300 overthrew the Midianites and the Amalekites. This is where Saul and Jonathan and their army were decimated by the, Philipp uh, the Philistines. Now, this is where Napoleon won a great battle that gave him control of that part of the world. Uh, this is where General George Allenby, in the first part of the 20th century, fought a decisive battle, uh, by the way, using tactics that the ancient Egyptians used when they came into that area. And he overthrew the Turks and gave the British control of the Holy Land, which then set the stage for 1948 and the emergence of the modern state of Israel. And that site in the future will be the staging ground for a final battle that will involve the whole world. Now, that may seem incredible to you. I mean, how could you ever get all the nations of the world represented at one site like that? Well, remember what verses 13 and 14 told us about those unclean spirits. I mean, that explains how it's going to happen. And also keep in mind uh, where we are in human history when that battle takes place. By that time, the whole earth is underneath the government of the Antichrist. People have been compelled to accept his mark. Well, add to that the fact that there's going to be demonic coercion. Uh, you're dealing with a supernatural individual who's going to be crazed with this one objective, uh, the annihilation of Israel. Remember, Revelation 12 says that when the dragon during that period of time is hurled down to earth and blocked out of heaven, he goes away in rage and he's going to make war with the children of that woman who's the nation of Israel. So that dragon empowering the Antichrist will have the sole objective of exterminating those people. Uh, you might say that he couldn't do it in World War II, so he's having another crack at it in World War III. Uh, in other words, when you consider the combination of demonic deception with the extreme nature of a world government led by a possessed dictator, 
you can see that the nations of the earth will obey him at their peril and they will assemble for battle just as the word of god predicts and the site of their staging will be megiddo now is that final scene meant to be the wine press then where the grapes will be reaped and trodden under the foot of god almighty well, to answer that question, I want to take you to the Old Testament passage that predicts, in particular, that second harvest in Revelation 14. You see, there, there is a passage that is the foreview hundreds of years before the coming of the Messiah to what you're reading in Revelation 14. It's actually in Joel, so turn to Joel 2. The first thing I want to do this passage is get our chronological bearings uh, so that you know that this passage is talking about the same time as revelation for example in joel 2 1 let me get this up there it is uh, god calls all the nation of israel to alarm because he says at the end of the verse that what period of time has come you see that it's the day of the lord um Look at verse 11. Uh, the Lord gives his voice before his, it says the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. Uh, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Uh, who can endure it? I'm having trouble pulling it up. There it is. Verse 11. Look at chapter 2, verse 31. The next one there on the list. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Uh, look at the next one on the list, chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now, just looking at those verses there, that should be enough in order to demonstrate that what we're dealing with in these two chapters is not the present, uh, nor is it anything that Israel has experienced in the past. And he's pointing ahead to the day of the Lord. And we had a whole study, you remember, on this expression early in our series, but we came to understand that the day of the Lord is basically a synonymous expression for the coming period of the tribulation. So in that time period, let's go to chapter three, verse one. Now I can come here. There it is. For behold, in those days and at that time, what time? Day of the Lord. When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations. Has that ever happened before? No, it is not. He says, I will gather them and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, that's the name of a Hebrew king, but that isn't the reference here. The root term behind the word Jehoshaphat actually means Yahweh judges. It's a literal meaning. I will gather all the nations in the day of the Lord and bring them down to a valley that I'm calling Jehovah Judges. And just to let you know we're on the right track with that. Look at the next line. He says, and I will enter into judgment with them there. Well, God goes on to relate why. It's on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they've scattered among the nations. They've also divided up my land. And in verses three and following, uh, God describes all the atrocities that the other nations have given to Israel. So verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, wake up the mighty men, 
Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And he's talking there about uh, taking agricultural implements and converting them into munitions. Uh, it's, it's like the Second World War when they took those big luxury cruise liners and they, they turned them into troop carriers. Uh, that's the kind of image described here. Verse 11, assemble and come all you nations and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, Yahweh judges. Uh, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And look at the terminology now, verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You can see that this is the background Old Testament passage to Revelation 14, 14 to 20. And what we learn from these details is that the harvest of the grapes is a harvest of gathered armies. It's the greatest assembly of fighting men and women and military equipment in the world's history. And again, if you struggle with the idea that it's, that it's possible for all the nations of the world to send their military personnel to that one part of the earth, underneath the dictates of a satanic personality who is energized to exterminate that chosen nation, just remember that the whole world is under his control. I mean, he has satanic power and deception on his side. And really beyond that, look back at Joel 3, 2, because the first line tells us who's really gathering the nations. It says it's actually God is doing it. So, do you believe in the power of Almighty God to do something like that? And my point is this. Don't question scripture about something that you just kind of imagine for yourself. And that bothers me a great deal with commentators, right? I mean, they've simply never seen or heard anything like that when it's interpreted literally. And so, well, now they've just got to go and spiritualize it. But you know, there's nothing more insulting to the word of God and the power of God. I mean, if a passage is a clear figure, that's one thing. But if a passage contains known places and numbers and specific details, and there's nothing that suggests a figurative interpretation in the text, don't dismiss the literalness simply because your, you know, 1.3 kilo brain just can't conceive of that happening. I mean, with all reverence to the scriptures, now, if there was a prediction in there that one day in the modern world, people would be locked in their homes and prevented from traveling more than five kilometers, except for necessities, and you read that two years ago, you couldn't conceive of that happening within a democratic nation, let alone across many nations of the world. Now, this passage is speaking of a valley. Now, it's unnamed and unspecified at this point in Joel. God calls it the Valley of Jehovah Judges, a valley into which all the armies of the world will gather. But if you really want to know where that is, well, Revelation 16 comes back and says, well, it's the one by the hill of Megiddo. It's all going down at Armageddon. Now, back to the original question. Why do you have two reapings? Well, it seems to be apparent that the first harvest, the grain harvest, is carried out by the Son of Man with a sharp sickle, 
And in Matthew 13, he'll employ his angels. And this takes place when the final bold plagues are poured out by those angels. But then you have one final mass event of battle. When God is going to take the remaining grapes, a grape harvest, and throw them all into a great wine press, and in a moment of time, tread them under his feet, so that the end result will be a vast, lengthy river of blood in a final execution known as Armageddon. In other words, this is the harvest of the wicked in two parts, just like Revelation 14 is describing. Now, that brings us to the second last question. What is the city in verse 20? It says that the winepress will be trampled outside that city. We remember that uh, we mentioned that Revelation 14 refers to Babylon, and we thought this might be Babylon by the Euphrates. But when you get to Revelation 16, you also have the hill of Megiddo involved. So perhaps Megiddo is the city in chapter 14. But I do want you to turn to another Old Testament passage, the one that just popped up there uh, in Zechariah. I want to look at a couple of verses from verse uh, from chapters 12 and 14. And we'll start with chapter 12, verse 1. And I want to start here because this, this will help to answer the skepticism of the human mind, our natural inclination to be disbelieving. It says, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord. And if you want to know something about what he is capable of, well, this is the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Okay. Any question about that? Well, if he can do that, don't doubt this. And that's the idea. And it leads into what's going to come. Behold, I will do this as well. I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah, that whole region, and Jerusalem. And it will happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut to pieces. Uh, they, they, will, they will rupture themselves, literally, that's the term. They will rupture themselves when they try to heave away that heavy stone. And look at the end of the verse. Though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. So based on that description, we know we're talking about the same event. But what is God going to do? Chapter 14, verse 2. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Those armies that are mentioned in Joel. The city shall be taken. The houses rivaled. The women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord would go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. Now that's geographically specific, right? I mean, here's the Mount of Olives. You know what that is? I mean, do we need to spiritualize that? Well, it faces Jerusalem on the east. So if God means something else, why does he give us the GPS location? And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. You believe that? You say, well, no, you know, that sounds to me like uh, uh, it's the human spirit of man. You know, the Bible says that the word of God differentiates between soul and spirit. And I think that's what's going on here. Really? 
And that's a, that, that's a common interpretation, but that's an odd interpretation because this says the Mount of Olives will be split, making a very large valley. Uh, half of the mountain shall be moved towards the north and half of it toward the south. And then you shall flee through my mountain valley. And I'll stop there. But verse nine says that the Lord then is going to be the king over all the earth after that. So it should be very clear to you that we're in the same chronological context. And in this case, the place where that battle is going to be decisively fought will be at what city? It's going to be Jerusalem. So I believe that the city referred to in chapter 14, verse 20 is Jerusalem, which is why I find it interesting that Jewish and Christian and even Muslim traditions all seize on that city as the location for the final scene in human history as we know it. That's why when you visit Jerusalem and you look across the Kidron Valley toward the Mount of Olives, you're literally looking at cemeteries on either side of that valley. On the one side, it's Muslim graves. On the other side, it's Jewish graves. And that's because they believe that this is the final site for resurrection. And scripture confirms that this will be the decisive point. Now, with that in mind, how do you explain the hill of Megiddo as the designated battleground, which is many kilometers to the north of Jerusalem? Well, I want to give you another Old Testament passage at this point. It's Isaiah 63, 1-6, which describes the same events. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But you'll notice that it says that the Lord is actually going to come from Basra. Now, Basra was an ancient Edomite city about 48 kilometers south of the Dead Sea. Isaiah 63 says he comes from Basra. And his garments are drenched with the blood of his enemies. Now, that's obviously never happened before. And you have the same thing described in Isaiah 34, 6 to 8. So let's just put it all together. How do you have all of these geographical places involved? I mean, it's Basra, 48 kilometers south of the Dead Sea, then Jerusalem, further north, and then Megiddo, much further north. Well, the answer to that seems to be that the staging ground for these armies will be all along the line from Megiddo down to Basra. I mean, if you're talking about all the nations of the earth sending their military personnel to one battle, you have to acknowledge that they will have a vast encampment. You say, well, how could Jerusalem possibly withstand that? Well, Zechariah 14 says that God will make the city a heavy stone and everybody who tries to take it down is going to get ruptured. But then in the end, he will let it be conquered. And this will involve a vast encampment of military might that evidently follows all along the line from north at Megiddo to the south at Basra. You can see it on the map there. So when the Lord comes on his white charger, the picture seems to begin down there at Basra, where he enters the atmosphere and then thunders right past the walls of Jerusalem and all the way to Megiddo following one massive line of troops and equipment. I mean, you're talking about multitudes and multitudes of armies uh, upon armies, 
the Antichrist will be there. The false prophet will be there. All the generals with their masses of battalions will be gathered. And as Christ moves up that line, it will be like they are all part of one long red line of slaughter. I mean, what chance do grapes have under the heavy tread of a man, regardless of how many grapes there are? And what chances will the armies of the earth, regardless of their numbers and their technological equipment and their advanced weaponry and their atomic capability, what chance will they have under the mighty, powerful, omnipotent tread of the Son of Man? And when he finishes, what you will have is a belt of blood. And that moves us to the last question that I raised at the beginning. What about that river of blood? Revelation 14.20 said it's how long? It's about 320 kilometers long. Now, guess how far it is from Megiddo to Basra? Pretty close to 320 kilometers, or about four and a half hour drive if you're going by Google Maps. Now, I wonder if the idea of a river of blood up to the horse's bridles, about four feet or so in depth, and about 320 kilometers long, I wonder if that just seems impossible to you. I mean, maybe that's just poetic license. Maybe it's hyperbole to make a point, maybe. But let me remind you that there was a day in the past when God judged the whole earth. And he said to Noah, I'm going to drown this whole globe in water. You think anybody believed that? Eight people believed it. So are you someone who believes in a literal river of blood up to the horse's bridles, nearly 320 kilometers long? Well, you know, the human body contains about five liters of blood, which is about 10% of your weight. That's a bit gross to try and calculate this, but imagine a five liter jerry can filled with blood. It would take less than 10 million people if their blood was drained. I mean, if you just squeezed it right out of them, it would take 10 million people to fill a riverbed four feet high. Although it would only be about 15 to 20 centimeters wide. But what about 200 million people? What about a billion people? I mean, believe me, there's enough blood to create this river that will be spilled when the Son of Man treads those armies under his feet. And I want you to look now at Revelation 19, where you have the most graphic picture of this final event. In chapter 19, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords appears. And in verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. 
These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. You can see that in this case, he's the executioner himself. And then it says all the birds were filled with their flesh. You know, Nazareth is where our Lord passed the majority of his life. And it's located on a ridge overlooking the plain of Jezreel. In fact, you can see Nazareth from Megiddo. And this means that for all the years of the Lord's childhood and his teenage years and his young adulthood life, he grew up every day glancing out and down at the scene of his final earthly triumph. Now, when this person died on Calvary, he accepted in his own body the entire fierce wrath of God for my sin. And if you know him, for your sin as well. And if you want to know what it would be like to experience the wrath of God like that, the scripture says it's like being a bursting grape that is ground underfoot with the blood spurting out in streams. But when you consider the horror, of that final judgment in the harvest of grapes and all of that blood being spilled. Consider the fact that he shed his blood first and he offered it as the cleansing for all of your sin. He made himself obedient to God the Father in that death. And it's, the scripture says it pleased the Father to bruise him. And that's what it took for a life-giving stream to be opened as a fountain for sinners, a stream that is deep and wide and that cleanses thoroughly right down to the roots of our beings. But then, you know, one day, and maybe soon, the sacrificial lamb of God will become the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he will take the kingdoms of this world and make them his kingdom to be delivered up to God the Father. So we would do best right now to love and adore and worship him as our king rather than to face his wrath in that coming day. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, how we thank you and praise you for this incredible plan of salvation, a plan that has extended to us your mercy and your grace through the blood of our Savior. And we thank you for that blood. And Father, as we think of the future, the day when the cup of your wrath spills over, that day when the armies of the earth gather against the Messiah and are decimated in one final blow. Father, we just pray that you would draw out from the world all those who were called by your name. And we pray that you would, in your mercy and in your grace, save them. And that you would have the, the, those multitudes around the throne praising and glorifying your name for what you've done, how thankful we are for salvation. And we thank you for this glimpse into the future. Help us in our hearts to do what is right, because we know what's coming. Help us to live holy lives even now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.